Perhaps the last time Americans volunteered in mass was in the days and weeks immediately following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yet, as my father and many of his generation found, many more men were needed to wage a two-front war. And so, there was conscription. In the American Civil War, conscription was also eventually resorted to first by the Confederacy in April of 1862 and 11 months later by the federal government. Yet the overwhelming majority of those who fought in both northern and southern armies were there because they chose to be. Indeed, the Civil War was the last great American conflict fought essentially by volunteers. This is their story, the common men and women who stepped forward. This is Call to Duty, 1861. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. In the state capitol at Columbus, Ohio, senators waded through another mundane session when a member burst in from the lobby. Catching the eye of the presiding officer, he called out, Mr. President, the telegraph announces that the secessionists are bombarding Fort Sumter. There was stunned silence in the chamber. Then far up in the gallery, a woman jumped to her feet and shouted, Glory to God! An abolitionist, she believed only blood and war could set into motion the freeing of America's slaves. But her passionate words seemed to speak for men and women in both the North and South. As strange as it seems, there was the release of pent-up emotional tension that had been building for decades. Two men, however, did not rejoice. Rather, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis felt draped round their shoulders the weight of the world. On the 15th of April, Abraham Lincoln announced that combinations too powerful to be suppressed by any United States marshal or federal posse had taken reign in various southern states, and therefore the 16th president called for 75,000 three-month volunteers. Down in Montgomery, Alabama, Jefferson Davis made a similar call. With war upon the land, northerners and southerners flocked to their respective banners. And as to their respective commander-in-chiefs, it is interesting to note that Jefferson Davis, an 1828 graduate of West Point and self-made patrician, never truly understood the makeup of the common soldiers that filled the ranks of his armies. Conversely, Mr. Lincoln never went to West Point, but once had been a captain of a volunteer company during the 1832 Black Hawk War. In response to the very first order he gave, he got an enthusiastic, resounding, go to hell. His independent-minded men were so unruly that despite Lincoln's orders, they marched on and broke into the regimental whiskey supply and proceeded to get rip-roaring drunk. For his inability to control his men, Lincoln was ordered by a court-martial board 
to carry around a large wooden sword for two days. He never forgot that humiliating experience and the nature of those fiercely independent men. And therefore, between the two, Abraham Lincoln probably knew the volunteer soldier better, knew what they could do, how much they could stand, and how much they could be persuaded to do. But all that would take time to manifest itself. Historian E.B. Long calculated that in a nation of 31 million, one of every 12 adult males served. In those early days, it didn't seem so much like war as it did an extended picnic. A common soldier from Illinois wrote as much. He wrote, I never enjoyed anything in the world as I do this life. He thought it wonderful to be where a fellow can lay around with sleeves up, collar open, or shirt off if it suits him better, hair unkempt, face unwashed, and everything un-everything. It beats clerking ever so much. Noted historian Bell Irvin Wiley in his classic works, The Life of Johnny Reb and The Life of Billy Yank, provides insight to the dizzy delirium that was those first months of the war. In North and South, with all the excitement, music and speech-making, each day was like the 4th of July. Iowa, which joined the Union only 15 years earlier, filled Lincoln's requested quota 20 times over. Ohio was to raise 13 regiments. Its governor, William Dennison, telegraphed Lincoln he could fill 20. All across the North, state authorities begged the War Department to take more. Recruits, if not taking, refused to go home. And for those who did enlist, the real problem was not getting them, but holding them to manageable numbers and then supply them. Most in the North enlisted first for three months then later for three years. In the South, the period of enlistment was almost always for the duration of the war. Women were just as fervent as men. They made flags, clothing, sang martial songs, and raised funds. Ladies also provided powerful motivation and recruiting drives. Wisconsin soldiers remembered a girl who cried out to her escort in a voice loud enough for all to hear, John, if you don't enlist, I'll never let you kiss me again as long as I live. Now you mind me, sir. I mean what I say. And not surprisingly, even children were caught up in the patriotic avalanche created by their parents and adults in general. Young boys in Shenango, Pennsylvania, organized a company, elected a 13-year-old captain, and held weekly drills in their schoolyard to the accompaniment of a dinner bucket drum corps. Impressionable students in northern and southern colleges and universities were not about to be left behind either. On April the 27th, 1861, 23 days before North Carolina seceded, students at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill petitioned trustees to suspend classes for the duration of the conflict. Though that request was rejected, many students and faculty still volunteered, so many that after graduating 125 in 1859, only 24 graduated in the North Carolina class of 1862. Passion flowed, and it had no geographical boundary. 
At Oxford in Ohio, Senior Azra J. Dodds rose in the chapel and proposed organization of a university rifle company. In only a few minutes, 160 students and local boys organized what would become Company B of the 20th Ohio Volunteers. At the University of Michigan, five companies organized within two weeks of Sumter's surrender. And at Oberlin, a company was formed and co-eds there organized a Florence Nightingale Association. President Otis Burgess of Eureka College in Illinois volunteered and was voted captain of a company largely comprised of his own students. A company of students at the University of Mississippi was recruited on campus and to facilitate their departure, faculty moved up the date for final examinations. The fever even spread to those who were not accorded equal respect and protection under this nation's law and existing social conditions. Jacob Dodson, a freeman employed in the United States Senate, offered 300 free African Americans for the defense of the federal capital. In Minnesota, Chippewa Chief Hole in the Day offered himself and 100 more for the Union cause. For all that volunteered, there had to be some standard of physical condition for acceptance. And early on, that standard was as broad as the Atlantic Ocean is wide. Then, examinations were quite simple and, quite honestly, often overlooked. An examination might be nothing more than stand up, take two or three taps to the chest, have a physician run his hands over your shoulders, back, and limbs, then demonstrate that you had two thumbs and were equipped with at least two upper and lower teeth. Despite all the press and print dedicated to officers, common soldiers comprise nine-tenths of all forces, north and south. And as much as it may not sit well with our ultra-sensitive times, as Professor Wiley noted, the majority of Northerners did not fight to end slavery, and most Southerners did not fight to preserve it. Now, that being said, many from New England did indeed enlist to fight for emancipation, as did many Germans and Scandinavians who not only joined up to free slaves, but to prove their loyalty to their new country. For so many who did enlist, their motivation was as varied as their last names, to get off the farm, get away from their dull existence, the lure of new places, adventure, to join friends and relatives, and or for immigrants in particular, the Army pay of $13 a month. Now, no question, there was, in addition, the extreme sense of duty, love for country, or hate for those trying to destroy it. For many Union volunteers, a repeated phrase in their letters was, fighting to maintain the best government. For Confederates, motivation to volunteer came early on from fire eaters, which included editors, preachers, lawyers, and politicians on the make. But like their counterparts in the North, Southerners also enlisted to escape farms, to seek adventure, to join friends and family for love of country and or the right to govern as they saw fit. Perhaps the most repeated Southern motivation was to resist the invader. Simply put, as one non-slaveholding Confederate answered a Union soldier's question, why are you fighting? The answer, cause you're down here. 
Now, once accepted, men were organized into a company of 100, usually from the same county or area. Local pride and martial spirit demanded, for many, a company nickname. For example, in the North, there was the Oxford Bears, the Douglas Guards, the Huron Rangers, or the Detroit Invincibles. Down South, there was the Lexington Wildcats, the South Florida Bulldogs, the Chatham Boys, or the P.D. Wildcats. Ten companies comprised a regiment, and that unit was the most beloved of that war. As Private William Watson of the 3rd Louisiana Infantry put it, our home was the regiment, and the farther we got from our native state, the more we became attached to it. And many of those regiments had special characteristics. For example, the 1st New York was recruited largely from New York City fire departments and was known to include several criminals. The 7th New York was a dandy outfit. Its soldiers wore tailor-made gray uniforms as trim as West Pointers. The 37th Iowa was known as the Graybeard Regiment because each in this Home Guard unit had to be at least 45 years of age. The 8th Wisconsin was known as the Eagle Regiment because its Company C showed up with a live eagle as its mascot. And reflecting its predominantly Norwegian makeup, the 15th Wisconsin had 128 men whose first name was Ole. And in one company, there were five Ole Olsons. The 39th New York was an immigration smorgasbord. It possessed 15 different nationalities and had a Hungarian officer who gave orders in seven different languages. As to the number of immigrants, 25% of the federal force was not native-born. And the largest group of immigrants in Union service was first German, then Irish. For Confederates, 95% were native-born. And in that small 5% of non-native participants, the largest group was Irish, then German. Now, at some point, almost every regiment had a ceremony in which they received their regimental flag, their colors. There might be speeches, a parade, perhaps a banquet, religious assembly, or mass meeting. Regardless, the supreme moment came when the regimental flag, often sewn by local women, was presented. At some point, units were transferred to a location where instruction began. As you might imagine, it was at first wildly erratic. For many officers, many of them elected, learning on the job created situations like that that befell Union Captain Daniel G. Chandler. He was marching his men when they started to close on a fence. As they did, he became flustered and forgot the proper commands to alter their direction. The closer they came, the more discombobulated he became. Finally, he simply bellowed, Gentlemen, will you please halt? Drill instructors could not take for granted that every common soldier even knew his left from right. That was particularly true for farmers. Innovative drill instructors had men place a sprig of hay under one foot and straw under the right. Now, farmers may not have known left from right, but they certainly knew hay from straw. Thus, hay foot, straw foot, hay foot, 
Strawfoot, now combined green officers, men figuring out left and right, marching by company, regiment, and brigade, and comical situations were common in the early days. But if any unit was fortunate enough to have a regular Army State Military Academy officer, a Mexican War veteran, or foreign soldier with military background, that certainly was a positive. Now, camp routine went something like this. Reveille at 5 a.m. After the first sergeant called roll, breakfast at 6. Sick call at 7. Drill at 8. Recall at 11. And lunch at noon. From then until 4 p.m., there was fatigue or policing of camp. Recall the third of the day at 5. Mounting of the guard at 5.30, parade at 6.30, tattoo at 9, and taps at 9.30. Inspections were usually on Sunday. And like any place where many gather, it did not take long to find distinct types that made up a platoon, a squad, or a company. The most despised character was the deadbeat who shirked duties and lived off others. Then there was the blowhard or the puffer who was invincible in peace and invisible in war. There was the rogue who could range from a ne'er-do-well to thief, cutthroat, or even murderer. And there was the sot who drank everything no matter how vile. There was the mournful one. There was the forager who spent most of his time supplementing his rations. And then there was the recluse who sometimes bordered on snobbery. Then there could be found a dandy who wore paper collars, long-legged boots, and custom-made clothes. And there was also a Jonah who always seemed to blunder, spill something, or had no rhythm. Winter months, with all of its inactivity, were always the toughest for morale and health while in camp. Sitting around in foul weather invited homesickness, lack of privacy, and sterner discipline from officers. The end result was often short tempers, resentment toward mates and officers, and impatience. One Virginia private by the name of Ted Barkley tried to rationalize it all after a tough winter's march. Well, here I am at the old camp near Winchester, broken down, halt, lame, blind, crippled, and whatever you can think of. But I'm still kicking. Now, to combat inactivity and boredom, officers tried to keep their men busy, and that meant drill, drill, and more drill. Like all American soldiers, regardless of war, the common soldier was quite proficient and creative when he exercised a time-honored practice, the verbal abuse of officers. Here are a few labels found in letters. Whorehouse pimp. A vain, stuck-up, illiterate ass. A whining Methodist class leader. A goddamn fussy old pisspot. And the time-honored classic, son of a bitch. Now, at some point, a northern or southern regiment was formally inducted into federal or confederate service. Usually, it came with an inspection by a United States regular officer or established confederate states officer. And then, eventually, units were transferred to camps near the front, like Cairo, Illinois, Richmond, or Washington City. 
That transfer was quite sobering, for men knew combat would soon follow. Before the move, furloughs were granted for many for final farewells. Rumors of where they were going ran wild, and there were usually many false starts. At departure points, whether it be at a station, wharf, or depot, there was usually music, bouquets, and farewell gifts. Once on their way, moods tended to lighten. Pranks were played. There was joking and imbibing when they could. As his unit made its way toward Virginia, one New York volunteer wrote to his mother, After we got out of their hearing, the boys acted as if they had forgotten their mothers and wives that they had just left. One thing many did to raise spirits was to sing, and they did it constantly. Popular historian Bruce Catton said that Civil War soldiers may have been the singingest armies in American history. And as citizen soldiers passed through towns, it seemed each locale welcomed them by way of speeches, music, feasting, handshaking, and kissing. One stopover for Union soldiers was long remembered. It was in Philadelphia at Cooper's Shop which was perhaps the most well-known volunteered way station in the North. In one year, this 24-hour refuge served 87,518 soldiers. As to uniforms, units at the conflict start dressed in a variety of styles and colors, for there was no standardization. That meant that the first major battle of the Civil War, First Bull Run, or First Manassas, was essentially, if you will, a pajama party. At first, Union volunteers from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania showed a preference for blue. Gray was predominant again at first for volunteers from Wisconsin and Iowa, and then, of course, the variations. From gray with green trim for Vermont volunteers, Black trousers and red flannel shirts for those from Minnesota, and the Zouave uniform popular with many from New York and Louisiana. To fill urgent Army contracts for uniforms, textile manufacturers in the North compressed fibers of recycled woolen goods into material known as shoddy. Very quickly, they fell apart, making the noun shoddy an adjective. Not until the summer of 1862 could one say with any degree of certainty that northern troops wore blue. Confederate common soldiers also had a variety of colors, but not to the same extent. We think of gray, but many, particularly those out west, wore homemade apparel which was often dyed in a mixture of walnut shells, acorns, and lye. The resulting color? Butternut. More times than not, southern soldiers had to rely on their respective states for clothing, or what mama put on their back. At first, new volunteers, particularly those in the north, were weighted down. Think about this. Six pounds of woolen uniform, a 12 to 14 pound rifled musket, haversacks and rations that weighed around six pounds, Cartridge box, cap box, bayonet, scabbard, rubber and woolen blanket, and a filled canteen that added four more pounds. Now, knapsacks might include underclothes, stationery, photos, toothbrush, razor, soap, books, letters, a mending kit, and maybe even a light skillet. 
40 pounds was a pretty common weight for the knapsack alone. However, once new soldiers became more seasoned, common sense took over. Take only what was absolutely needed. Roll it up in a blanket, then tie it around you like an inner tube. As to weaponry, Union armies began the war with 81 types of muskets and rifled muskets and ranged from 45 to 75 caliber. And yes, some poor quartermaster had to supply ammo for all. Eventually, the most used was the 58 caliber Springfield and the 57 caliber Enfield. Of those who volunteered, historian E.B. Long in his work, The Civil War Day by Day, describes the average Union common soldier. He stood five foot eight and one quarter inches, weighed 143 and one half pounds, had brown hair, blue eyes, and even though there were more than 300 occupations represented by Union soldiers and 100 by Southerners, the most common pre-war occupation was farmer. The average age was 26. The largest single age group was the minimum legal age, 18. Drummer boys and musicians had no age requirement, and that presents some interesting scenarios. Hoosier Edward Black was nine years old when he enlisted in an Indiana regiment. And Charles C. Hay joined an Alabama regiment at 11. But probably the most well-known underage volunteer was John Clem of Newark, Ohio, who enlisted at 9 or 10 and served in the 22nd Michigan. For the record, he made the Army a career, and he retired from the United States Army in 1916 as a major general. At the other end of the age spectrum, there was Curtis King of the 37th Iowa, who served for four months before he was discharged for disability at the age of 80. There were other unusual enlistees, like Albert Cashier of the 95th Illinois, who enlisted in August of 1862. Cashier left the service in 1865, and it was only after an auto accident in 1911 that he was found to be a she. In the 2002 work, They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the American Civil War, Deanne Blanton and Lauren M. Cook relate that some 250 documented women disguised their sex to join the war effort. One thing one did not see in 1861 was African-American infantrymen. At that time, Lincoln feared that if blacks were accepted, armed, and in federal uniforms— he might push to secession the slave-holding border states of Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. He did make an exception, however. African Americans were allowed to serve on Union vessels engaged in blockade duty for the simple reason they were at sea and not as visible. Now, when, of course, the Emancipation Act went into effect on January the 1st, 1863, African Americans were accepted in mass and the Psalm 180,000 participated in 33 major battles. As to other minorities, we know that eventually there were three Confederate brigades of Native Americans and one Federal. 
Well, as we've mentioned, units of men were collected into camps, organized into companies, regiments, brigades, divisions, corps, and armies. What could the common soldier expect as to his military experience? Over the course of the war, it has been estimated that a volunteer spent 60% of his time in camp, 35% marching, and 5% in battle. In other words, months and months of tedium shattered by flashes of absolute terror. To relieve monotony, there were diversions, many diversions. Dominoes, checkers, chess, but more times than not, card gambling games. Oh, and one new game in particular was fashionable, and it deserves mention. It was a relatively new sport and called rounders. We know it as baseball. One essential diversion was, of course, eating. Officers learned that for soldiers to stay healthy and mentally sharp, one soldier needed three pounds of food per day. Coffee and the three-inch square cracker flour and water called hardtack was the staple of the Union diet. Hardtack came in boxes marked B.C., which stood for Brigade Commissary. Because it was almost always hard and stale, B.C. to the common soldier was the date they believed the cracker was made. Now, there were some culinary innovations, like desiccated, compressed, mixed vegetables, which were cubes of dried carrot, turnips, and such. And, of course, in camps with hundreds of characters, oh yes, boys would be boys. There is no question that while in camp, alcohol consumption created more mischief than anything else. And some of the vile stuff common soldiers drank, well, it was lucky they survived at all. And oh yes, there was prostitution. At the beginning of the war, with so many men around Washington City in particular, the capital was rife with the oldest profession. In fact, by 1863, there were some 450 bordellos and more than 7,000 prostitutes in Washington City alone. Some of the names of their establishments there? Hooker's Headquarters, The Haystack, The Ironclad, or Madame Russell's Bake Oven. Now, when discipline was breached, officers had to respond, and that might mean riding the saw buck or paraded about camp, stripped of rank and unit designation, and forced to wear a placard that proclaimed the offense. Other penalties forced an offender to wear a barrel shirt, drag a ball and chain, or to be bucked and gagged, which was particularly uncomfortable. For some offenses that went way beyond the norm, Yes, there was military execution. We know of some 500 Civil War soldiers who were executed. Of that number, two-thirds were executed for desertion. We estimate that one of every ten in blue and one of every seven in butternut and gray deserted at one time or another during the war. However, in May of 1861, those who enlisted were filled with patriotism and romantic innocence but in only a few months, there would be the fighting at Big Bethel, First Manassas, or Bull Run, 
Wilson's Creek, and the innocence would be lost forever. When fighting began, again, thanks to E.B. Long's exhaustive research, here are the chances for a common soldier in war. Of those actively engaged, one of every 43 was killed. One of every seven was wounded. One of every 38 died of their wounds. One of every 10 was captured. And if imprisoned, one of every seven died in prison. One of every 13.5 died of disease, and that was seven times better than those who had served in the Mexican War. As you might surmise, the greatest killer for the common soldier was not bullets. It was disease. For every man who was killed in action, two died of illness and disease. And many on both sides had their first bout of illness when they first reported to camps as green recruits, especially those from rural settings who arrived with little, if any, immunities. Childhood diseases like chickenpox, mumps, whooping cough, and particularly measles ravaged camps. And then there was sickness that resulted from impure water exposure, greasy or impure food, mosquitoes, flies, gnats, lice, fleas, and general filth. The greatest killers of the American Civil War were diarrhea, dysentery, typhoid fever, and pneumonia. As to wounds, be reminded that at the time, Louis Pasteur had some ideas about microorganisms, but that was in the fermentation process of wine. And Joseph Leister was experimenting with surgical antiseptics, but sadly, their discoveries came after the war. The tragic results? 87% of all abdominal wounds to Union soldiers resulted in death, and 62% of all wounds to the chest also mortal. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, there was another kind of medicine, and it was called music. Next to letter writing, it was the most popular diversion in the Army. It is believed the American Civil War sparked more new songs than any other event in American history. The first came out three days after Fort Sumter had been shelled. Four years later, there had been over 2,000 melodies added to the nation's musical treasure chest. Only one thing topped music, a letter from a loved one at home. Letters constantly crisscross the war-torn country. It has been estimated that some 45,000 letters were in transit each day in the Federal East and 90,000 out West, with words quite often spelled phonetically, thanks to improper educations. Text reflected a soldier's rural roots, like found in some of the letters, a phrase like this, thicker than lice on a hen and a damn side ornier, pitching around like a blind dog in a meat house, or raining like pouring peas on a rawhide. Fredericksburg looked like the latter end of original sin and hard times. Or another wrote that he was so hungry he could eat a rider off the horse and snap at the stirrups. And they could be quite comical even when they didn't mean to. 
As one soldier wrote, I am well at present, with the exception I have got the diarrhea, and I hope these few lines will find you the same. Here are some lines from one who found his first battle to be, well, entertaining. Dear Pa, went out of scouting yesterday. We got to one house where there were five secessionists. They broke and run, and Arch hollered out to shoot the ornery sons of bitches, and we all let go at them. They may say what they please, but God damn it, Pa, it's fun. Fun? That word was quickly forgotten for a few expected four long bloody years. Few expected over some 700,000 dead and over a million casualties. But in the spring of 1861, all that stretched in the future. All the more tragic for the vast majority of these common soldiers who spoke the same language, feared the same God, and shared the same dreams. Indeed, as the war spanned into years and casualty lists grew, one Confederate common soldier may have captured what all common soldiers felt when he wrote, We could have settled the war in 30 minutes had it been left to us. And a Union soldier added, When we weren't killing each other, we were the best of friends. But in April of 1861, those realizations were cocooned by innocence, by the romanticism and the supposed glory of war. Lessons to be learned yet again by the horror of civil war. Wars are declared by politicians. Military commanders design great strategies and then give orders. And for centuries, those orders have been carried out by common soldiers. This has been an attempt to tell their story, to humanize the hundreds of thousands who sacrificed during the American Civil War was anything but common. And in parting, an old poem, something perhaps to remember or recall when the next group of politicians declare the next war. 40,000 men went forth to fight when 40 statesmen thought it right. Had statesmen fought and died instead, there'd have been but 40 dead. All this in memory of my dear father, a common soldier in the European theater of World War II. If you are interested in reading about the common soldier of the American Civil War, I strongly recommend a brand new work that came out last year by Edward L. Ayers, The Thin Light of Freedom, Civil War and Emancipation in the Heart of America. An excellent work written from the ground up through the eyes of those common soldiers and families across the North and South. And then also two essential classics on the American Civil War that gives great insight to what it was to be a common soldier in blue or butternut and gray. Both are by Bell Irvin Wiley, who wrote in 1943, The Life of Johnny Ribb, and nine years later in 1952, The Life of Billy Yank. Find them, enjoy. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.